0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot, scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth.
2: Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about beacons for blind people, for partially sighted people with Tianan Kenny, who's the head of communications, public affairs and standards for Wayfinder. Tianan, thanks so much for joining us on the show.
1: Thanks for the invitation.
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I love what you guys are doing. Uh, we're going to talk about a bit about the history of some of the projects that your organization's been doing that led up to this standard. I want to um, pick your brains about what's in the standard. I think it's pretty unusual. Beacons and standards um, don't always go well together. There's a lot of proprietary stuff, and I think it's really great that you are capturing something that will hopefully help people deploy beacons in Um, in railway stations and other places uh, to help partially sighted people and my personal belief is this could have much broader implications than just the philanthropic piece which is obviously commendable but I think it could really help the beacon ecosystem so hopefully anyone that's um, got a big public venue will uh, pay attention to to what we have to talk about but maybe we should start off with um, W- with a brief explanation of who Wayfinder are?
1: Sure. So, uh, Wayfinder is a nonprofit organization. We're based in London, in the United Kingdom. We're incorporated as a subsidiary of RSBC, which is the Royal Society for Blind Children. So that's a charity based in the UK that works with um, children and young people up to the age of about 25 who are blind or vision impaired. And it was initially formed as a partnership between RSBC and US2. US2 is um, a digital design studio. So you might know them for the Monument Valley Games or for people who are in the UK, the Barclays mobile phone application.
2: Very good. And so how long has the organization been going for, did you say?
1: Uh, Sorry, so we set up in early 2015.
2: All right. So So this this has been uh, going for a
1: while. It has indeed, yeah. Yeah. making slow but steady progress. How, uh,
2: how, how much progress have you made? So you have a, a standard out that's been blessed by the International Telecommunications Union, actually has an um, uh, ITU number associated with it. Uh, so that's a, an achievement. What, what else would you say the organization has achieved?
1: Um, well, we moved to the standard kind of probably late 2015. Initially, when WaveFinder started, we were looking at a very specific challenge of young vision impaired people who wanted to be able to travel on the London Underground independently. Um, and then, after playing around with that for a while, we came to the conclusion that having this standard would have much more global impact. So, the, the process of developing the Wayfinder Open standard itself, we would say it's quite an achievement. It took a little longer than a year. But what was really great was that we got um, input from so many different groups of people. So, you know, kind of first and foremost vision a pair people would be using this service at the end of the day, but also an awful lot of, kind of academics and experts and also the technology providers, both kind of the beacon manufacturers and then also the application developers. So um, the outcome is kind of quite robust and consensus based. And then you mentioned the international telecommunications union standards. So, um, with that approval, we have the world's first internationally recognized standard for accessible audio navigation, and the IT are also quite proud for that as well because they're starting to do a lot more work on accessibility in light of the implementation of the UN Treaty um, on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So uh, Wayfinder is a bit of a flagship for them as well. And then in terms of what we're up to now, we're doing some work in the United States with the Consumer Technology Association to have the standard recognized under the CTA and C program. And uh, we'll possibly do something similar in Japan in the near future. And also obviously as part of the process of kind of creating, co-creating the standard, we've been doing these audio navigation trials kind of all over the world. So we've done stuff in, off the top of my head, London, Norway, Spain, Italy, and Australia, and a couple of other places where I've helped out with little bits and pieces. Um, and that's obviously made people aware of kind of the fantastic potential of indoor navigation technology for people who are blind or vision impaired. And um, so hopefully we can keep that momentum going.
2: So is there an app? Uh, I know there is kind of an app. There's, there's like a, there's a model app, but this really came out of hard one lessons learned in the London Underground, didn't it?
1: Yeah, pretty much. So, um, I mean, as I said, the initial challenge was those young people who wanted to be able to find their way around by themselves using technology they're familiar with, which is effectively the smartphones that they all use every day. And the first thing that happens when you come to an underground environment is that things like kind of GPS or phone signal aren't really available. So that's obviously when we came naturally to kind of Bluetooth solution. And, um, yeah, yeah, it did start very simply with um, a massive, massive list of assumptions that we kind of either validated or rejected through time. And, and then obviously, as time goes on, we started looking at different kinds of academic frameworks to test out the kind of things um, we believe in or that we've read about or been informed about. And then as a result of that, we've come up with things that are included in the standard or not included in the standard at the end of the day.
2: But if I want to use this, if I want to try this out, um, how do I do that?
1: Oh, sorry, you actually yes, asked yeah. me. So um, at Wayfinder, what, what we have is a demo mobile application. So the, it's actually it's up on GitHub. It's I think it's under an MIT license, but it basically means anybody who wants it can go and play around with it. Um, that is designed to facilitate the trials that we do, as I mentioned. So it collects quite a lot of information about exactly when audio instructions are given to people and, and then through a combination of kind of camera work and stuff we would also look at how people react to them. Um, but as I said, it is only a demo app because you have to feed quite a lot of information into it to make it function. So if we had it in kind of the App Store or the Play Store, people would just download it all the time and claim that it doesn't work, which would not be productive. Uh, there are more and more indoor navigation apps that are kind of commercially available. So, an awful lot of people who provide them are members of the Wayfinder community. So, they do kind of the full commercial installations. And um, obviously, we've partnered with some of them in the past for some of the different projects we've done. Okay. And I should also say, my colleague Yanis, who is our kind of tech lead, is working on a small piece of code at the moment for the demo app, which would allow someone who un- understands kind of the basics of coding to download the app and then with a beacon simulator, which is basically an app you can put in your mobile phone to set up a kind of small demo of audio navigation kind of wherever they are in their home or their office. So we're hoping that will get more people interested in and excited about the technology.
2: Are there any production apps that this uh, standard has or, or any of this code has manifest itself in?
1: Yeah, quite a few. So. Um, I'll name a few of them with the caveat that there probably are more that I just can't remember off the top of my head. So there is one called Bony Loudsteps, um, which is a Turkish company, which are increasingly big in the United States and a little bit here in the UK as well. There is another one called YGA My Dream Companion, which is another Turkish company and that app is provided through Turkcell, which is one of the major network operators in Turkey. Then there is um right here in Israel, which is actually very big in Israel. I think they have a couple of thousand monthly active users. Um, And then there's a couple of other ones like um, Step here and so on. But uh, as I say, there are more and most of them are in the Wayfinder community. All
2: right. And uh, any in the UK?
1: Um, A couple that are active in the UK, but um, not kind of UK born and bred companies, if that makes sense.
2: Okay. All right. Very good. Um, how do you guys fund yourself?
1: So, um, in the good old days, the early days, uh, Wayfinder actually got $1 million from Google.org, uh, which is you know kind of the, the charity wing of Google, because um, they'd set up a kind of specific method of funding ideas that they thought were very good, but which might struggle to reach any kind of scale. Mm-hmm. So that is effectively what funded all the work on the first iteration of the open standard. And then in November last year, we received some money from the Big Lottery Fund, which is the entity that distributes funds from the UK National Lottery. Um, and that's for some kind of very specific things over the next two or three years. Um, there is some kind of commercial income for us in terms of the trials that we do, um, which to be honest, kind of at the end of the day, just about covers the costs and a couple of other kind of charitable grants we've received. Um, the neat thing about Wayfinder is because it's non-profit, um, we don't necessarily need a huge amount of revenue mm-hmm. to keep going. But um, because we're a subsidiary of a charity, the charity is our guarantor. So we equally can't run up a huge amount of debt or run the deficit because that would create a problem for the charity in terms of governance.
2: Yeah, right. Makes sense. Well, I do want to talk about um, the standard, and, and having um, gone through it, it seems like it's actually more than a standard. It's also kind of a collection of best practices and pointers to resources and so forth, which I think is very, very helpful for people who are looking at not only your application, but any application in this space. But um, maybe a, a philosophical question, which is, do you do you feel like there's you know, what's the motivation for an organization to implement this? And is there, uh, I, I'm an optimist, and so I kind of have this feeling that there's, uh, there's money to be made uh, from helping people. If you can help people, um, uh, there's often kind of other benefits other than just philanthropy. Um, do you believe that? Or do you think it just needs to be something that's, that's pure and, and simply philanthropic?
1: Um, Well, I think certainly there's benefits from using a standard like this. I mean, kind of first and foremost, it's free, so there's not a huge cost to taking it on board.
2: Yeah.
1: One of the main advantages we would say to people who are looking at implementing a system that complies with the standard is that using the standard provides a consistent experience for a vision impaired person, whether they're in your building on some kind of metro system or anywhere else and at a global scale that's what will make vision impaired people start using indoor audio navigation because then it will be very clear what kind of information it provides exactly when it provides the information and how that dovetails with the person's primary mobility aid if they use one so the kind of the cane or the guide dog and um, if you don't have this kind of accessibility standard you could end up with these kind of fragmented audio navigation solutions and what would effectively happen then from our previous experience is that you would have very small groups of users who use um, one or two navigation apps that they know and understand. But if they were to go somewhere where that particular app wasn't available or somewhere they'd never been before, they wouldn't use a navigation app because they wouldn't know what the experience is going to be. And to be in an unfamiliar environment trying to navigate, trying to use a complementary layer of audio navigation, um, the experience would not be very good. And in some cases, the cognitive load would be too great for the person to think. Think through
2: using it. That makes sense. So uh, you have a common approach, which well, a it's difficult to write these apps and have them actually be usable and useful. It's I'm sure there's a lot of apps for the blind that have 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 failed or partially sighted, I should say. Um, but what you're saying is, by making it consistent, then it's kind of this we're going to increase the chances that you can go from one app to another app and people will, will actually find this thing to be usable because there's consistency in terms of the, the way you give the directions and, and that sort of thing. Maybe we should just talk about the standard. And I'd like to go back to this question of what's in it for and why should organizations be doing this and, and, the, and the scope of the standard. But what, what's in this thing? What is in the standard?
1: So basically, I'd say at a very high level, the standard should give you as, say, a venue owner all the information you need to figure out how to kind of develop and roll out an audio navigation system in your estate that is usable for people who are blind or vision impaired. So in practice, what that means is it has an awful lot of information about how you should structure um, an audio instruction you give to someone and what kind of features of the environment you need to inform people about. Uh, And then, as you've kind of pointed out as well already, there's a good bit of information about different ways you can use Bluetooth beacons to act as the kind of the indoor positioning element of the navigation system. So the the main thing is the the environmental features, to be honest, to understand um, what information is useful for someone when they're approaching an elevator or a ticket barrier. And at what stage you need to give them the information in order for them to be able to react to it and how often you need to <clears throat> reassure people that they're on the right path if they're going in a straight line, things like that.
2: Yeah, and I was interested, there was like even this issue of um, whether you want to um, uh, tell people the most direct way of getting to where they're going or, or the safest way. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, If you were to get an accessibility consultant and take them to a shopping center or a train station, they would be able to look at kind of the diagrams of that space, look at how people move through it and plot what they would consider the most accessible route, which is a combination of the fastest route and the safest route. So, for example, if you see um, vision impaired people who are using a cane, very often they would walk um, along a wall. And they would be using their cane to keep in touch where the wall is, because that's one of their ways of orientating themselves in relation to the building. So, if you were at a large train station, it might take you longer to navigate it if you're walking around by the walls. Um, but if you and if you were to walk straight through the middle, it could be quicker, but equally maybe more dangerous for some of these vision impaired, because there are more people or more kind of temporary elements. So uh, that's one of the kind of the interesting things in the standard, where as in in abstract, you can't define the most accessible route. But once you have all that kind of information, that's something you can start to look at and something you can talk to the potential users about. Because um, you know, people who use that space, say, two or three times a week would say, this element is particularly difficult for me, or I would never take that pathway because this is you know, much more likely to happen if I do that.
2: I mean, one of the arguments against this sort of thing is if this is a space I travel through regularly, then I really, as a partially sighted person, I don't really need this because I know it well. Or if it's a place that I only go through occasionally, then I can just ask for help. H- how would you address that um, um, criticism?
1: Well, I suppose the, to the first point, I would say, I think, as you see more and more of these apps become available, they will allow themselves to be personalized for the users. Um, So someone might be able to set, say, their home train station or their home bus station, and from that get kind of um, less guidance than they would if it was someplace they'd never been to before. And to your point about kind of asking someone for assistance, we started off because, as I said, we had a bunch of young people who wanted to be able to travel independently, um, which was kind of very important to them on a kind of personal and the group level. And you know, speaking from experience in the UK, there are assistive services available on public transport, but in some cases, you need to book them kind of 24 or 48 hours in advance. So if you're somebody who's vision impaired and you decide, even if you decide you want to go visit your friend tomorrow, it kind of might already be too late. Um, and there's also other instances where you would have train stations outside large cities that are unmanned for large periods of the day. So for someone who's looking to navigate that space, either assisted or independently, it can be quite difficult. And that's one of the ways the system can really come in handy.
2: That, that makes sense. And you've got some nice video footage on the website of young people talking about how important this is. And you watch that and it's hard to to not be moved uh, by uh, the, the need to do this. So are there any other kind of a, examples that you can speak to where these kinds of apps have made a difference to specific people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you kind of one example. Just before Christmas, um, we were doing a very small trial in Venice in St. Mark's Square, which um, some people listening probably know is kind of the main large square in Venice. And my colleague Janice is there as well. And there's a woman who was, I think in her mid-50s, who was using our demo app um, along with her cane and she was walking around and she was kind of very happy, she loved it. But she was with her sister and her sister got kind of very emotional and came up to Janice and she was incredibly grateful and she said, you know, I never thought I'd see the day where my sister would be able to kind of walk around by herself and find a way around without me having to worry that she might injure herself or that something might happen to her. So that there's loads of kind of little stories like that that come out when you get people to see it and or to test it. And then you know, there's also some other kind of quite interesting videos we have of people in say a space like a shopping center who have very very limited vision and you know, maybe kind of a little bit of light perception in one eye and they walk around with the demo app and they're able to find their way around and um you know they're kind of really amazed at this so all that's kind of quite inspirational in a way and you know even again one of the companies mentioned earlier the the my dream companion app with turexel the private manager for turexel is um kind of quite severely vision impaired herself so i mean for her it's not only something that allows her to kind of improve the lives of people of similar conditions to her but it's also provided her a kind of pathway into employment as well which is um another major challenge that vision impaired people in general tend to face
2: do you let's go back to this question about the venue owner's perspective because um uh, the fact is that most venues haven't done this um and it seems to me that they 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 should because the cost of beacons is really not that high in fact you let's get into the weeds of the standard briefly before we come back to that question so you outline kind of two approaches to putting beacons sighting beacons in a venue can you talk to what those two approaches are um
1: You're putting me a bit on the spot now.
2: Let let me uh, help you out. The whole sort of proximity versus uh, trilateration approach. And uh, um, I I mean, we can don't need to get into the technicalities of it. But I thought it was kind of interesting observation about the number of beacons required for one versus the other and how it suits, um, you know, the suitability for actually guiding guiding blind people. Can, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, sure. I mean, if you're looking at the, the first option, which is the much more kind of path-dependent one, where you're looking at each beacon to give out a particular message dependent on the path the user has selected, um, it works maybe when you're in kind of very linear, simplistic environments. But Or if you're looking to provide a lot of kind of contextual, point of interest information. So in a shopping center, being able to say to someone, um, you're beside Zara versus being beside Primark or something like that. Um, so this is the, the
2: proximity approach. So you basically you put the beacon at major kind of intersections or points of interest. And it seems like um, the advantage there is you can have a sparser number of beacons, potentially.
1: Potentially, uh, but also maybe an increased risk that you would potentially lose people um, in a space where they scope them to go off the path or approach a beacon from the wrong direction. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. Uh, Whereas, obviously, with trilateration, as you said, it requires probably more beacons. But depending on the app you're using, you have this capacity for a kind of more accurate real-time fix on where a person is and then um, correction built into the, the kind of location engineer algorithm.
2: Yeah, so trilateration, the system actually has an X and a Y coordinate for the person and is using that to issue the guidance. Proximity they may not actually know where the person is they just know that they're close to a point of interest and therefore you're giving giving directions so interesting i think for us beacon nerds it's kind of interesting and uh, it's it's also uh good to know what the implications are for the people that are actually using this uh this app so that's the kind of guidance that that you've got and i've seen other stuff in the standard about where you position beacons and uh How you get people to navigate through busy places. So let's go back to the other point, which is getting big venues to do this. Because I've had some experience with this, and and I actually think this is part of a bigger trend. Good news is, this is part of a bigger trend. And one of the things that uh, Williot is actually working on for um, uh, for, uh, NEAD LLC, National Emergency Address Database, is putting beacons in to help emergency calls. And it seems to me that if venues need to be thinking about, well, how do I save the lives of people when they have to dial for an ambulance or police or whatever it is, but they can also have that infrastructure and use it to help people with disabilities. Is it simply a matter of philanthropy on the part of the, the venue? What are the arguments that we can use to persuade venue owners to divert there's more time than, than capital, I guess, to, to getting this kind of thing working.
1: Yeah, cause, I mean, the thing, as you've identified, I'd, I'd always say to people is, if you're installing this beacon network, this is something you can layer on top of very easily. It's, it doesn't mean you have to install anything else specific. There's a bit more time involved in terms of app development, certainly. But if you were to look at the advantages, you would say, first and foremost, you can get more people to come to your venue because you've made it more accessible, which as a venue owner is always more enticing. And then we look kind of specifically at vision impaired people, but there are also benefits of audio navigation for people who aren't vision impaired. I mean, a simple example someone gave me very recently was you could have someone using an indoor navigation app, which just works on the screen of their phone, and they might go into a shopping center they've never been to before, where maybe they don't speak the local language. So. They have their phone in their hand, they go into a shop, they buy something, then they have a bag in one hand, their phone in the other. Go into a second shop, now you have a bag in each hand and you can't hold your phone anymore. But if you can just stick an earbud up into your ear and still find your way around, you're probably more likely to continue buying things. So um, I think there's that whole thing, as you say, about the, the hardware deployment, allowing you to do multiple things on top of it. There's making your space more accessible for people who are vision impaired and then making your space more usable for people in general and that's a point you'd make an awful lot with transportation only. So you'd say in general if you build a train station or an airport the building is kind of a fixed size but very often you find you have more and more people coming through it or more people than you thought would ever come through it. So you have a fixed space with an increasing number of people moving through it but an audio navigation system is the kind of thing that can improve the flow of people so you can use your infrastructure more effectively instead of suddenly saying oh we need to build an extension you know, in an airport, which is a very difficult thing, or an underground train system, which in a place like London is in some cases impossible, because if you go left, you hit an underground river. And if you go right, you hit like a plague graveyard or something.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think another argument I would add to to the pot is if you believe in putting in beacon infrastructure for commercial reasons, uh, Layering on this kind of application on top can give you some political cover, and this may sound a bit mercenary, but uh, uh, traditionally, these beacon ROIs take a while, um, and you can declare victory. If you can support people with disabilities, then you can declare victory on your project, and that gives you a little bit more breathing space to to get the commercial ROI. So I think for a project owner, uh, it's worthwhile doing it for, for that reason, even if the kind of the idea of helping partially sighted people doesn't justify it on its own uh, on its own merits let's just uh, talk a bit about the spaces that you see adopting the standard it seems like it it, it was originally very focused on uh, railway stations um but it sounds like it's being used in other places as well
1: yeah so Part of the focus on railway stations is because we started off working with TfL and obviously that's what they have a lot of in terms of the London Underground. So that's transport
2: for London, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. sorry. And um, public transport would be a big focus for us because we're kind of looking more holistically, especially with kind of the RSBC ha-ha of helping vision impaired people live full and independent lives. And a large part of that is making it possible for them to get out and about. So, I mean, we know in the UK, half of vision-impaired people don't leave their homes as often as they'd like to. And 79% of them have a lot of trouble using public transport. And if you can give people the power to use public transport wherever and whenever they want, it means they can do an awful lot more. So they can go out and visit their friends and they've got to go to the shops, know that they can get to their place of work predictably and reliably. So by kind of addressing that one point, in kind of their journey or their life cycle you can have um, a, a very kind of great impact in terms of all the things they can do with their life and um, that being said we get a lot of interest from retail venues and I think in part that's because again I wouldn't be as much of an expert as you I see them as kind of the, the early adopters of beacons in many ways because there are an awful lot of kind of quick wins in the retail industry from using them so we have a lot of interest from there which is, is also good for us because You know, I was told this very funny story a few weeks back by a Scottish guy who has been vision impaired for most of his life, and um, he was just taught how to go to certain places from his home, one of which was to go to a supermarket in a shopping center near his house. And he'd be going there for years, and one day he wanted to go to this, um, this health food shop. It's a chain here called Holland and Barrett. So he was saying to the woman at the checkout, oh, you know, I wish there was a Holland and Barrett in this shopping center. And she said, are you joking? It's literally next door. You know, but the, the way he'd been taught and the assistive technology he was using, he had no way of finding about it himself. You know, so he was kind of completely reliant on someone else to give him that information. And obviously, if he'd known that, he probably would have been buying stuff in there for a lot longer.
2: Well, uh, and that's a that's a really great point and something that you make here on your website is there's a lot of people who are partially sighted. This is not just about people who are completely blind. It's, it's uh, what, uh, 285 million people with... Uh, with sight loss in, in, in the world. And one thing that's become really clear to me as my uh, parents and in-laws are getting older, that actually, glycoma and that sort of vision impairment is something that um, can, can hit many families um, as, as people are living longer lives.
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I mean, I think according, there's a recent study in The Lancet, which is a medical journal here that says the number of blind people worldwide is going to travel between now and 2050 and as he said that's mainly a result of the world's aging population because vision impairment is primarily something that happens to older people so kind of people over the age of 60 so it is a group that people are going to have to start thinking about a lot more in terms of design needs and I think you've also kind of hit the nail on the head when you say that you know vision impairment as well is something that very often comes on kind of gradually So it's saying my granddad is now registered blind back in the Republic of Ireland. And, you know, myself, my family would have kind of noticed maybe over the last 10 years that his vision was getting a bit worse. He gave up driving maybe eight or nine years ago himself because he didn't feel kind of comfortable. Um, And now you'd see for him to kind of walk around independently would be very difficult. But with someone with him, it's kind of fine. And, you know, we as a family didn't really think about that until someone came along um, from the health service and said oh you realize your grandfather his sight is now sound limited he's blind um, and I think that's going to happen to a lot of families and a lot of people around the world and again he's kind of he's a very kind of fiercely independent person so if this kind of thing was available to him you might say it could have given him independence for a few more years probably not for driving that wouldn't be a great idea but just in terms of being able to get out in the bay himself and be not necessarily to have to use audio navigation all the time but to know If he found himself, say, in low light conditions or in an unfamiliar area, he could just kind of stick something over close to his ear and be able to find his way home safely.
2: Well, I think allowing people to get out uh, is going to keep them healthier, isn't it? It's going to keep them mentally healthier and just physically healthier. The more we kind of confine people to their homes, then the worse the decline is going to be. And so I think it's important that we put this kind of infrastructure in place. Um, one uh, objection that I had, or it was really more of a question that was framed as an objection when I was pitching this to uh, a venue owner that I was working with, uh, was, well, this can't possibly work because, you know, blind people can't, um, uh, you know, how can a smartphone that relies on a visual user interface be helpful to blind people? And we, I've talked about this a bit when we were interviewing Gavin uh, Neat of Neatbox. But can you speak to a little bit about the specifics of what it takes to get a phone um, equipped such that it can be useful to someone that's visually impaired?
1: Well, sure. I mean, I think as well, there's, um, when you talk about people who are visually impaired, vision impaired or blind, people often leap to the idea of someone who has absolutely no vision at all which very often is not the case. People could have kind of quite good light perception or just a particularly narrow field of vision or things like that. Um, and from my experience, because you know we have kind of quite a few vision impaired people working with us in RSBC, they just take out their iPhone and turn on the assistive mode, um, which is basically text to speech. And from there, they can do everything on their phone that you or I could do. And in some cases, they can do it a lot quicker than I can. So it doesn't require a kind of a specialized phone for someone who's vision impaired. Um, And especially as well, if you were to say now, if you look at older people now who are vision impaired, they wouldn't have grown up using smartphones. So you could say, look, maybe it would be a challenge for them to suddenly use a navigation system that's smartphone based. But if you were to look at, you know, what I'd say in, in broad terms, kind of the next 20 million people to lose their sight, they're probably between the ages of 30 and 60. So they're using smartphones every day anyway. So I really don't think that's a barrier to kind of adoption or use at all. And in the trials we do, we always make sure to get a wide range of people. So in terms of the vision impairment they suffer from, the type of primary mobility aid they use, and also their familiarity with technology. And um, it's never really come across as a barrier.
2: And uh, tell us a bit about the the headphones as well, because another argument I've heard is, well, it's not safe having people who rely on... Audible cues having headphones on.
1: So, yeah, what we'd recommend to people is that they use the bone conducting headphones. So, they sit effectively just in front of your ear on a bone there, which I don't know the name of. But what, what that effectively means is you can hear the guidance that's coming through there, but you're also kind of cleared into the ambient surrounds. Yeah. And there's also there's no noise leakage from these bone conducting headphones. So, um, I mean, the first time I tried, them, I was sitting there and weren't listening to a podcast, and it was so loud and clear, I, I turned to Yannis and I said, this must be annoying you. And he said, I can't hear anything. So, um, again, it's good because, I mean, someone would be able to use an audio navigation system without necessarily the people around them knowing that. Because one of the other reasons when we started with these young vision impaired people is they felt when they were using the assistance service on the tube, sorry, the London Underground, it possibly made them more vulnerable. Because how that works is you're basically escorted through the station by a member of staff who's wearing kind of a high-vis vest, who then takes you onto the train and finds you a seat, hopefully. And then when you get to the station you want to exit that, another member of staff comes, comes on and kind of escorts you off. But it basically means in between, you're on your own. And there are people out there who will target people who are vision impaired. I mean, I heard the story a few, a few weeks back about a woman who was on a bus in London where the the audible stop information wasn't working. So she missed her stop and she went up and asked the driver and he said, Oh, we've gone past it. But you know, if you just get off the bus and walk back that way, you'll get there. So she got off the bus and some other man who was on the bus, got off the bus as well and just mugged her.
2: You're kidding.
1: No. So, I mean, and that's obviously kind of a huge blow to her in terms of her confidence of going out and about traveling by herself. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, th- there are people in society who look for vulnerable people to prey on, unfortunately.
2: Well, we need to balance that out and do what we can to um, help this program get going. So y- you have a, an audience here who are very, we're very specialist niche audience on the Mr. Beacon podcast. People are looking at in, in the business, typically, or looking at deploying the technology. Is there any way that we can help what you're doing?
1: Um, I'd say just first and foremost, when you're talking to venues about deploying or installing beacons, tell them that this is possible and just make them aware of it and I'd say that would be a first very helpful step. Uh, Have a look at the application providers in the Wayfinder community. Most of them can layer their solution on top of any different type of beacon or the various protocols that are available Um, and just consider getting in touch with them and partnering with them on a project because um, very often you can start off with a small test that kind of even a little proof of concept and once the venue whether it's a shopping center or a theater or something gets a user group in to experience it the feedback is amazing and then that will help with the business case in terms of getting the actual full solution adopted and um, which will obviously have a business benefit for the people who are selling and installing these beacons
2: yeah so and, and and tell us a bit more about this community you talk of
1: sure so the the wayfinder community is kind of broadly a group of organizations who are interested in the development and adoption of audio navigation solutions across the world. So we do have quite a few beacon manufacturers in there, quite a few application providers, and then an awful lot of vision impairment organizations in kind of the UK, Australia, Spain, and so on. Um, Because as I've said, whenever we run these trouser projects, it's very important that we get the local vision impaired user groups on board. Um, First of all, to build awareness and secondly, because uh, we need people to come along and test these systems, and that's normally quite a good place to go. So um, we also would use them for inputs into updates to the standards. So when we run a trial, we'll set up a research framework, we'll share the outcomes with the group and the community for their feedback and input, and we would also encourage them to share any of their learnings or any of their their ideas um, about different ways to do things or better ways to do things, and then we can consult within the group. And the idea is you come to a consensus-based outcome, which has everyone's input and is therefore better as a result, which makes it easier for us to go out and stand over the validity of the open standard or the ITU standard when we're talking to people who, as you mentioned earlier, don't believe that you can make audio navigation work for vision impaired people.
2: Well, I think you've proved that you can. Uh, Tianan, uh, thanks so much for spending time with us. I think this is a really fascinating area. I think you're doing a wonderful job and more more power to you. And hopefully we can get a few more people uh, deploying these systems.
1: Definitely, that's the hope. I mean, if you look at indoor navigation globally as a market, um, it's going to grow very rapidly between now and 2022. Um, I'm sure everyone listening is, is kind of well aware of that. But from the accessibility perspective um, you know it's very easy to deploy a kind of blue dot indoor navigation system and it's not a huge amount of extra effort to make it accessible for people who are vision impaired so we have this really i'd say really big opportunity between now and 2022 to do something quite transformational and if we miss the boat on that it'll probably be kind of 30 years before people get back around to it and um, that was certainly our experience looking at the accessibility of web browsers So you might have seen in recent years, people have done a lot of work making web browsers accessible to people who are vision impaired. And the good news is they are now, but the bad news is, I mean, web browsers have been around for nearly 30 years, so basically means since the internet became kind of available to consumers on a mass scale, vision impaired people have struggled to use it. And when you think about how much of our lives we live online now, I mean, we're having this conversation on Skype, how much of a barrier that would be every day if you weren't able to do those kinds of things. So hopefully we can learn from that experience and deliver a better outcome this time.
2: Very good. Well, thanks for the conversation. It's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks for your time. Yeah, we have the the warm-up exercise, which is what three songs would you take on a trip to Mars and why?
1: Um, All right, I actually did take the time to write these down so I wouldn't forget. So the first one, and they're maybe not the most inventive, is um, Spaceman by The Killers, because obviously you're going to space, so I feel it's kind of somehow appropriate. Yeah. Uh, The next one is a similar theme. It's Starships by Nicki Minaj. It's also a rather annoying song, so if you came across any aliens, it might kind of actually drive them away. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And um, the last one, is um, again a slight nod to my Irish heritage it's Dancing in the Moonlights by Thin Lizzy so uh, again it's vaguely space themed but if it was going to take you three or four years to get across to Mars um, you might spend some time in the light of the moon reflected off the sun so maybe it's appropriate
2: Yeah, Thin Lizzy was the first band I ever saw live in concert I saw them at the Hammersmith Odeon when obviously Phil Lynott was alive um and it was uh, it was amazing he uh, this was kind of pretty basic none of these lasers and that sort of thing he just shone the reflected the spotlight on the uh on his guitar and kind of swept it across the audience uh, it was i remember it was really an amazing concert <sighs> okay well thanks for those that's very uh, very appropriate